Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Acts, the second chapter, beginning in verse 36 through the end of chapter 2. Hear now God's Word. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone who had need. So continually, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said, You may be seated. We have been looking at the events surrounding the day of Pentecost, the day that the Spirit was poured out, uh, that now this crowd of Jews who have assembled in Jerusalem, uh, first for the Passover and now for the Feast of Pentecost, are now, even though they've come from other countries, they have different native languages, they have heard the gospel, they've heard the wonderful works of God being spoken of, primarily regarding Jesus, his death, and his resurrection, and they've heard it in their own language. So this miraculous event has taken place, and they want to know whatever could this mean. What in the world does this mean? And last week we looked at uh, Peter, who stood to speak, and he quoted from some of the Psalms as well as from Joel, and he basically says what Joel was talking about this day that would come when the Spirit would be poured out upon God's people and that men and women, young and old, would prophesy in the name of the Lord. Uh, This that is happening here on this day of Pentecost is that. What he was talking about has now taken place, and then he unpacks and opens up the implications of that, the meaning of that. And so he concludes his sermon with these words in verse 36, Therefore, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly, and that word is sometimes translated safely, uh, so as to prevent escape. In other words, with certainty, know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, or Lord and Messiah. This is the Messiah you've been waiting for, and by using the word Lord... And quoting from the book of Psalms, he's identifying this Lord with Jehovah. This is God. This is your Savior. This is Him. Be assured of that. 
And so this summarizes his argument and calls, and it calls for a conclusion and some action. The Lordship of Christ still calls for a conclusion and action on everyone's part. And the text says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Many in the crowd were convicted of sin, which is always the starting place of the work of the Spirit. When we come into the presence of God, when the Spirit comes before us, it exposes us. It shines, the Spirit shines the light on us. We begin to see ourselves in the light of the truth about who God is and about who we are and about this broken relationship that we have because of our sins. And so allow me to pause right here and ask you, if you have ever felt that powerful working of the the convicting work of the Spirit in your own heart, He's talking to me, they said, as they're in this crowd. If so, then that work will produce an inevitable question. Now what? Given who He is and given what I am, And given the great gap between us, now what? Men and brethren, what shall we do? If what Peter and the others were saying about Jesus was true, then some kind of action was required. Especially in the later chapters of Luke's Gospel, Jesus had warned His fellow Jews that they, as a whole, were flirting with disaster, telling them that if the nation as a whole, and especially the city of Jerusalem in particular, did not turn around that their enemies were going to come and destroy them. And I'd like to suggest this morning that our own national circumstances are very similar. We and Israel of the first century have increasingly bought into a way of life that is the antithesis, that is the opposite of God's way. God's people are called to come apart, to be separate. We're called to be the light of the world, and instead it has become more and more difficult to distinguish the children of the church from the children of the world. Jesus said, I tell you, No, but unless you repent, unless you turn around, you will all likewise perish. They were, and we are, in a constant total war. I've quoted this before from my friend and teacher, Douglas Jones, and he wrote, to be a Christian is to be in in constant total war. We have no say in the matter, and no one is exempt from serving. The war is not just in some sideline feature of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. Every step towards seeing every knee bow before the Lord of glory is an act of war, whether in faithfulness or hatred. Until that point, the war is ruthless and relentless, The horrific enemy onslaught never ceases. The war is not only constant, but total, unconfined, and overwhelming. It is not limited to the daily fight against our own sin, but encompasses everything within and without, 
It is not limited to our own or any one time, but rages in every corner of history. It is not limited to our own flesh and blood world and history, but is driven by dark clashes in heavenly places. And and as this battle moves us all along, killing and maiming and crushing and roaring, much of contemporary Christianity fights with bumper stickers and self-esteem seminars. As the enemy smiles and schemes to ravage our children and decapitate our churches, we try to play down our differences with our attackers and use their institutions as models for our own. Now, I can't come out there and physically shake you to get your attention But I do hope that you have ears to hear and that you can be shaken by these words because we, like those who were present on that day, on that Pentecost day in Jerusalem, are in deep peril. And before you hand your children over to them, your children had better have been equipped for the war or else they will quickly become casualties of this war. And all it will take for that to happen is for you to be less than totally committed to the Lord Christ that Peter is preaching about here. The rejection of Jesus at the Passover 50 days earlier was the culmination, really, of their entire rejection of his way of peace and his kingdom. Their sending him to death on the cross was simply a rejection of God's way. We don't want to do it your way. Remember, that really starts in the garden, right, with Adam and Eve. We don't want God to tell us what to do. We want to do it our way. So that's been man's problem from the very beginning. And it's still the problem. It was the end, it was the end result of what Jesus had said repeatedly, which was that this generation is wicked and corrupt and headed for disaster. And it's not that difficult to see and follow the trajectory of a culture. And the trajectory of our own culture is the exact opposite of peace. All kinds of strife is constantly being stirred up. This world of ours can and will Come, come unraveled very quickly. Now, with the resurrection of Jesus, Peter and others, the others are explaining the meaning of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. He tells them that while this generation is headed for disaster, Jesus himself stands in the way and can rescue them from going over the cliff. So the good news is that Jesus can rescue you from the ruin that's about to come upon the nation and the city. This coming ruin wasn't so much punishment for the personal rejection of Jesus, but rather the consequences of their entire way of life, which was rejecting God's way of life. And again, we live in a vile culture that is little more than a constant party on the Titanic. This was true in the days of Noah, and this was true in the days of Rome and Jerusalem in the first century, 
And it is true of our own country right now. And God said, do not be, be deceived. God is not mocked. You, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Peter and the others were declaring a message, not just to the Jews in Jerusalem, but rather to all people in all times. You need to repent. You need to turn back. You need to turn around and go the other way. That begins with an all-out commitment to Jesus, the Lord, and Messiah. Literally, that is, really being a part of His kingdom and really bowing the knee and submitting to His kingship. You need to be fully identified with Jesus. You want to talk about identity politics, this is it. Your identity, first, foremost, I belong not to myself, but to Jesus Christ. That's who I am. Making His life, His death, His resurrection the center and foundation of your own life and the life of your family. And this, of course, starts with baptism. The sign of the new exodus. Coming through the water, leaving behind slavery to sin to discover a new way of freedom and life. You need Jesus to get a hold of you and save you and your family from the coming disaster. You need to be rescued from the consequences of your sins by having your sins forgiven, and you also need to be enabled and energized by the Spirit to go the right way instead. You need to turn around and go the other way. You need to repent. So Peter's message to the crowd in Jerusalem and the answer to their question, what what shall we do, was that they needed to get behind Jesus and actually follow Him. They would first need the sign or badge of baptism in order to identify with Jesus. That was the mark. They and their children, verse 39, would then share in the new life of the baptized community, which is the church. By the way, that's why church is so much more than something that we attend. The body of Christ is the place where we live, it's where we grow, it's, it's, and it's where we are nurtured, and it's where we embrace and follow Jesus. And we do it together. It is vital, it is living, it is central. Jesus has no interest in polite spectators. Repentance and faith are signified by baptism in Christ's name, which means that we acknowledge His authority, we acknowledge His claims, we subscribe to His teaching, we engage in His service, and we rely on His merits. After that, then they would receive two free gifts. The forgiveness of sins, wiping out the past, you got, any, you got any past that needs wiping out? I do. A bunch of it. I'm in a hell of a lot of trouble if it isn't. But I need more than that. Because I'll just go right back to it. I'll go right back to the trough. I need the Holy Spirit 
to empower me, to renew me, to make me a new person. A new kind of person. That's the message that Peter is giving here on the day of Pentecost. Together, these constitute the freedom for which many are searching. Freedom from guilt, freedom from defilement, freedom from judgment, freedom from self-centeredness, freedom to become the person that God intended me to be. But these gifts come with conditions. This is not a self-indulgent religion that I get to custom make to suit me. The gospel demands a radical turn from your sins to Christ. It starts with submission to the Lordship of Christ and to baptism. Uh, We change, literally we change our allegiance. We are transferred into the community of Jesus. Baptism is a sacrament. That's the Latin word sacramentum, which is an oath of fealty or loyalty. This same message that Peter is delivering on this particular Pentecost translates without any difficulty into every language, to everyone, in every nation, at every moment in time. As he says in verse 39, For the promise is to you, and to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So the promise was to those who were listening to Peter, but it was also for their children, it's also for your children, and it was for those who were far off. That is, it was for the Gentile world as well as the Jews. This was the familiar Abrahamic promise that God had given in the book of Genesis where he said, Abraham, I will be a God to you and to your descendants after you. And God said that he would make him a mighty nation and that all the nations of the earth would be blessed in him and through his descendants, specifically Christ. And Paul would later write of all Christians that we are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That's the promise Peter is alluding to. All those Jews that were gathered there in Jerusalem would have understood. Remember, they said, what shall we do? He doesn't say, well, I've got a brand new program. The old one didn't work. Now we have a new one. No, no, no. The old one that God gave to Abraham, it's still around. It's still here. It's now, it's just coming to its apex, to its fullness. And you know, you already know about it. So Peter was calling for far more than private and individual conversion, but also for a public identification with other believers. Commitment to Jesus implies commitment to his community, that is, the church. You cannot truly love Jesus and not truly love the church, because the church is the body of Christ. They are inseparable. In fact... In answer to their question, they would have to change communities. What shall we do? Get a new community. Transfer your membership from the one that was old and corrupt to the one that was new and being saved. Colossians 1, 13 and 14, He, that is Jesus, has delivered us from the power of darkness and... Con- or, or, excuse me, this is God the Father 
He, uh, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. I'm going to give you a bath before you come into this new house. Because you're dirty. We don't want you tracking in. We're going to give you some new clothes. Clean clothes. The righteousness of Christ. Then there's the beautiful and glorious response from this large crowd that Peter is speaking to, which is but the first fruits of the harvest. That's Pentecost, right? The first fruits. God says, I'm just going to start out with 3,000. Then those who gladly received His word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. So the body of Christ multiplied 26 times from 120 to 3,120, and they have been multiplying into the millions ever since, including us. By the resurrection, God had reversed the lower court's verdict on Jesus. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, and God plucked Jesus out of the place of the curse and placed Him in the place of honor. This is why we must continue to preach the authentic Christ of the Old and New Testaments. There are a lot of different Jesuses being presented today, but we need the real Jesus. He is historical. He really lived. He really died. He really rose. He really ascended. Theological, His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, all have saving significance. And He is contemporary. And what I mean by that is He lives and He reigns right now. I remember hearing an old Baptist pastor say, the problem today is that most people have a little bitty Jesus. And a little bitty Jesus can't save anybody. The primary witness to Jesus, witnesses to Jesus are the prophets and the apostles which we have in the Bible. Our witness is secondary. Now, turn to another subject here, last part of this sermon, the new family. Now what? Baptized, now what? Well, the four marks of the church, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. These four go together. They can't be separated, nor can you leave one out without doing damage to the whole thing. Let's look at each of those briefly. The apostles' teaching. As soon as you become a child of God, He enrolls you in His school. He takes you as you are, but He will not let you stay as you are. He begins to work. Ephesians 2 says, We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good work. Romans says, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. He goes to work on us. This school opened with 3,120 students in the kindergarten class. Minds need to be instructed, changed, and developed. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. As Peter wrote in his first epistle, Chapter 2, verse 2, 
As newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. If you're not diligently paying attention to the teaching of God's word and committed to a lifelong learning, then you, like everyone else, will quickly, will quickly revert back to the worldview and mindset of the surrounding culture. You and your children will end up with your minds shaped by whichever cultural pressures are the most active and persuasive. Anybody, is anybody trying to do that to you? Only constantly, all the time, 24-7. Jesus will quickly become a faded memory and an insignificant influence. He'll simply become your hopeful ticket to heaven. He'll just be your fire insurance. Fellowship. Koinos means common. If you ignore the common life of the community, the fellowship, and treat it as less than a priority, which means, by the way, more than friendship, but not less, then you will become more and more isolated and self-absorbed. It's all about me, what I like, what I don't like. I don't have any obligation to, to deny myself or anybody else what's in it for me. I wrote a book a few years back with Rich Lusk called The Church-Friendly Family, so I'm going to quote myself. Worship of God is the true center of every society. Not always a question of which God, but God cannot be worshipped rightly in any culture without that worship challenging and dislocating all idolatries. To focus on the right worship of God is to declare war. It is to throw down the gauntlet. We must be sure that we acknowledge the priority of God's claim. The problem we've been facing in our recent years is that we don't really view the church as the primary family from which every other family draws its name. The church is not an institution ordained to assist the family so that it does the work of the kingdom. It's the other way around. The family is an institution that is utterly dependent upon the church in order to be equipped and guided so that it can be a blessing to the world rather than a curse, which apart from the church, every family would be. The church is the place where you learn service, self-sacrifice, and true and fervent love like Jesus, who laid down his life for his friends. We, have, we first have fellowship with God himself in the Trinity. So, for example, 1 John 1.3, John says, That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And then in 2 Corinthians 3.14, Paul says, the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. And second, so we have fellowship with the Trinity and we have fellowship with one another, giving and receiving. Koinokos is the Greek word for generous. They met one another's needs. 
Love is always about sacrifice and giving. What can I do for you? What do you need? Third, breaking of bread. I do think this is a reference to communion because it has the definite article here in the Greek. It is, it is breaking of the bread. Communion is the sustaining sacrament of this community where we are constantly reminded of who we are and why we're here and of who Jesus is and of what he has done and is doing for us. So the table is where the Father feeds his children and nourishes their hearts and their minds. The table is also a picture of the marriage bed where Christ, the husband, communes with the church, his bride, in intimacy. Both of these images embed in us the necessity and reality of our covenant bond with God. The death and resurrection of Jesus are the center of everything. In Him all things consist. Everything is from Him, through Him, and into Him. Everything. To neglect this is to invite sickness and sorrow for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. This communion is both formal, which is what we will do here in just a few moments. That is, it forms us. It's what form to be formal. It's forming us. Why? So that when we go out these doors and we go to our house, we do it informally. What formed us here in the liturgy is to shape us so that when we go to our house and we gather around our tables as fellow Christians in our families or with friends, we're doing the same things. We're loving each other. We're talking to each other. We're praying with each other. We're singing together. We're communing. Your house, the central mission of your house is to be a place of loving communion. And everything you do, every last thing you do, taking out the trash, cooking the dinner, making love, raising the children, going to work, paying the bills, all of it should be serving that central purpose, a common union in Christ. And it's possible for any one of those things to do the opposite if the devil gets a foothold. You can have a big fight over who's going to take the trash out and rip the communion apart and not speak to each other for three days. That's what the devil wants to do. And he, he's doing it all the time, and you need to stop him. And when you see it start to happen... Rebuke the devil. Formal and informal communion. And then prayer. The fourth thing. And finally, to neglect prayer would be to forget that we are both heaven and earth people. Prayer connects heaven and earth, which are designed to be joined together. The new heavens and the new earth are our ultimate destiny, but they have already begun here and now. I know that for most of you, going to church has been your habit, perhaps for your whole life in some cases. It has become routine and ordinary, and in many churches, that's exactly how it feels. But for a moment, I'd like for you to imagine your world without the teaching of the Bible. Imagine living in a world without a common life built around a shared faith in Christ no breaking of bread together, and no prayer. Suddenly, it is all gone. 
the world will gladly try to replace it all with, with its own cheap substitutes and amusements. The world is happy to entertain you to death. The music will play and the party will drum on as the train throttles toward the cliff. Jesus had warned, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 2, Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. That's about as plain as it gets. And then finally, verse 46 and 7, so they continued daily with one accord in the temple. And breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The attractiveness of, Christian, of Christians' love for one another is what draws people in. And if this isn't happening, then perhaps it's time we focus on this text and get on our knees and ask what isn't happening that should be happening. The gospel hasn't changed. God's power is not diminished. And people still need to be rescued. Does gladness and simplicity of heart describe you as a member of the body of Christ? Because one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. True joy in the heart always comes out of our mouths. It comes out of our attitudes and our behavior. The Lord did not add people to the church without saving them. There's no nominal Christianity. Nor did he save them without adding them to the church. Because there's no private Christianity. The verb for added is an imperfect verb, which means that he keeps on adding. This is emphasized when we consider the word daily. That this is an ongoing work of Christ. Each of you were added to the church by Christ on a particular day. And you were added to be part of something that is bigger than yourself. And you have been rescued, saved, and turned around. That all started on Pentecost. And it's like throwing a huge boulder, maybe a meteorite, into, a, into the ocean. And the ripples and the concentric circles, the waves, have been fanning out in history and to every corner of the earth ever since. Let see ourselves in this story, in that crowd. Let us say, what shall we do? And then let's do it. Oh Lord, thank you for keeping your promise to rescue us, to rescue us from our sins and to rescue us from the world. Stir us to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to forsake this world. 
May we not be like Lot's wife and look back to Sodom with longing, but may we, by our baptisms, leave Egypt behind and cross over into the promised land, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, how thankful are we? Let us express that with voices, hands, and hearts. And now, O Lord, teach us to come to you when our spirits are depressed, when we grow weary or anxious, draw us to yourself. For you are the only one who can fix our hearts and furnish us with a ballast to render us steadfast. Without your grace to uphold us, we are but wind. May we be in union with you who does not move, nor is changed by time or circumstances, but who sits in the heavens and moves all things by your powerful hand, according to your infinite skill. While while we have you as our God, we have your immutability for our advantage. The nearer we come to you, the more stability we will have in ourselves. The further from you, the more liable we are to change. Bless now our feasting and our resting. In Jesus' name, amen. Lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen.